Hi, friends. Welcome back to House Wine, uh, because every wine that you drink in your house, I guess, is technically your house wine. I am Rachel, and I'm the host, uh, certified sommelier from Toronto, in my little pillow fort, recording this episode on Marsala <laughs> today. Uh, so no news this week. Um, maybe we should start a countdown. <laughs> I was thinking it's been exactly one week since I said uh, that one day Etna would become a DOCG. And there has been no movement. We're in the doldrums of wine news. And that said, I am also going to be taking a very, very short hiatus. I'm not going to be posting an episode next week. Just to give a little time to catch up, I might try and crank out a mini-sode. Uh, but if I don't, I will be back the following week. This episode uh, <laughs> took long time to write, longer than I thought, and I had a, a little bit of a hard time recording it because it has been thunderstorming very intensely here. So while I've been home and off work, every time I sit down to record this episode, it seems to be uh, in the middle of a thunderstorm. And so I sit down, I'm like, oh, I, I, I can't, I can't record right now. And then <laughs> I try and let it pass and it's a whole thing. Anyways, I'll just say, this episode's probably going to go up just a titch late. We're going to be releasing episodes on Tuesdays from now on, and next week, maybe a mini-sode, maybe off, and then we'll go back to our regular scheduled Tuesdays. So this is a companion episode to last week's episode. So when we talk about sweet and fortified wines, it's hard to put them in with another episode on dry wine. Dry wine. Because when you're making dry wine, there is a process for sure. But for the most part, dry wines of this world, or for the most dry wines of this world, the process is pretty much the same. You take grapes, you press them, you make a few choices in the winery. You know, should this wine be aged on lees? Is this a wine that would benefit from barrel aging? So I'm not trying to downplay the fact that all wines are process-driven, but when we start to talk about other kinds of wines like sweet wine and sparkling wines, there is always a little bit more of a process. Something had to be done very deliberately in the vineyard or in the winery for the wine to turn out the way it does. There are more decisions that a winemaker has to make, sort of more forks in the road of how the final product will turn out which is why when you have a process-driven wine like Marsala, there's just a little bit more to talk about. And we are going to talk about some of the other sweet wines of Sicily today as well, just not just Marsala. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of you have probably never had Marsala. Uh, maybe if you are a fan of putting on British baking shows to fall asleep to, then the word Marsala rings a bit of a bell because you might have heard it one night you know, eyes half open, a grandmother from Sussex talking about Marsala cake. But Marsala has had a bit of a, a hard go of it. From being one of the most popular wines in the world to being one of the least popular wines in the world. It's kind of like um like a wine that peaked in high school. They have been making wine on the western side of Sicily for a very long time, since the colonization of Sicily by the Greeks in 800 BCE. And because of the climate of Sicily, these had always been strong wines with some sweetness to them. As, like I said last episode, all about Sicilian wines, when you don't have temperature control or fancy equipment, there can often be some sugar left in the wine. So many of the wines of antiquity were most likely a little bit sweet. Historically, though, we do know exactly when the modern invention of Marsala, as we know it today, came to be. 
and that was in 1773. An English trader from Liverpool, John Woodhouse, came to Marsala. A lot of accounts say that he was, or say that he landed by accident uh, due to a storm, but I don't know how true that little piece of the story is. Anyhow, he was very famous for importing port and sherry into England, both of which are fortified wines, which means that they add distilled alcohol back into the wine, usually before it is done fermenting, so that that wine has a little bit of sweetness uh, and becomes a little bit stronger. Though this had not really been the tradition in Marsala. It was not the tradition to fortify wines. They were making sweet wines, and they were also cask-aging their sweet wines. John Woodhouse was so taken with the wines of Marsala that he brought some back to England with him on that very trip. But in order to make sure that they would withstand the voyage back across the Mediterranean, he added 8.5 gallons of grape spirit into every 101-gallon barrel he brought back to fortify it for the journey. At this time, the market for wines was really in England, and this was the hub of where all trade in fine wines was happening. So by doing so, he effectively made Marsala a fortified wine because when he brought it back to England and it was a hit, he had introduced them to a fortified version of the wine, not the wine that had been made in Marsala all along. And so from that point on, Marsala, the wine as we know it today, became a fortified wine. Due to its popularity as a fortified wine, it was awarded its DOC, and it was one of the first DOCs to be granted in Italy in 1969, but has been on a pretty unfortunate downwards trajectory Uh, as the wines of Marsala have been relegated mostly to cooking wine in the last few decades. The market for sweet wine and fortified wines has really been on the decline as the North American market has really gravitated more heavily towards dry wine. Marsala cake, chicken marsala, these are some of the more popular items that you'll find being made with Marsala today, rather than being an actual wine that is served in restaurants or wine bars. But that doesn't mean that it isn't of interest to us. These wines have been through a lot, but they're still relevant. I mean, all wine is relevant if they're still making it. And they definitely are still making Marsala. So the grape that they use the most in Marsala. So the grape that they use to make the most Marsala is a grape called locally Grillo. And you can find Grillo really all over the island being used to make dry wines as well. Grillo is a white grape, and it's naturally heat and drought resistant. Being able to withstand high temperatures here is key, as the grapes that are used to make Marsala are usually done in a late harvest style. This means that they are left on the vine to become ripe or overripe and at times almost a little dried from sun exposure. It also means that they lose some of their natural acidity that is desired in making dry wine. And the concentration of fruit here is higher, making these grapes full-bodied, rich, and fruity before they are made into an actual wine. You will also find the grape Inzolia, Inzolia, (laughs) my Italian, Inzolia, being grown here to make Marsala, one of the native grapes of Italy. And it can be found also in Tuscany under another name, Ansonica. And though it's by far not the most popular white grape that Italy has to offer, it pops up in a number of DOCs all over mainland Italy as mostly a blending partner. Though Inzolia 
is really more renowned for making Marsala than it is anywhere else. The last grape they like to use here is a grape called Caracante, one we should know quite well by now. Uh, a grape that we talked about last episode. It's a dry, or last episode, they use it to make the dry wines of Etna DOC. And it can also be used to make Marsala. But it's usually used to supplement or bolster Grillo and Inzolia. As we have mentioned before, <laughs> it's uh, very easy to grow and a very vigorous grape that has really high yields. So some of the cheaper and more commercial Marsalas rely on Caraconte as an easy-growing alternative to Grillo, which can be a little bit temperamental at times, even though it's pretty heat-resistant. As the popularity of Marsala began to decline, they came up with a series of wines that were called Marsala Special. This is pretty much the perception that most people now have of Marsala, because Marsala Special became very popular in the 70s and 80s, and these were really the primary types of Marsala wines that were coming into the North American market. Marsala Special wines are very, very sweet. They're almost like syrup, and a lot of them are flavored. Think like Irish coffee, but wine. They were used often as, like I said, sweeteners for coffee or for the purpose of baking. So you can still find them in flavors today. They come in range, like, <laughs> they come in flavors like almond, chocolate, coffee. Marsala, the DOC, in sort of a last-ditch attempt to clean up its name, banned the use of the word Marsala in the wines of Marsala Special. And that happened in 1984. They were really trying to differentiate the more serious sweet wines from these sort of sweet coffee additives. But most of the damage to the name and reputation had already been done. Similarly, Sherry in Spain dealt with a very similar PR problem around the same time when they were most known for dessert and cream sherries, which had also been popular in the 60s and 70s. But had tarnished the name of some of the best manzanillas and finos that the region has to offer, which is today why there is still quite a bit of perception that sherry is a sweet wine when really it's quite the opposite. But that is another episode. I'm not going to get too into sherry here. Now here's where things get a little bit tricky. And the reason why sweet wines have their own and fully dedicated episode, because sweet wines are, like I said, wines of process, basically meaning that the winemaker has a lot of decisions to make from the point that the grapes are harvested to the time that the wine is bottled. There is a lot of different ways that you can make a Marsala. Before we get into the modern styles of Marsala, I think we should just note that long before John Woodhouse ever came to the western side of the island and quote-unquote, discovered these wines, they were making wine there. And the styles of wine that they were making were not the sweet, fortified styles that we know today. And legally, you are still allowed to make, in the DOC of Marsala, the traditional dry styles of wine that are historic to the region. Though I must admit, these are pretty rare. Though you do have some Marsala houses still making these styles and trying to connect back to wine lovers uh, by using these more traditional styles like Marsala Vergine and Marsala Vergine Solera. The wines that are being made this way can be dry, but they can also be sweet. And they do indeed sometimes use a Solera system for aging the wines of Marsala. 
We haven't talked about what a Solera is yet, but it is a popular way of making wine in sherry. There's a lot of connections between sherry and marsala. It's actually pretty interesting. So think of it like this. It's a way of blending wine. You have a large stack of barrels, and all of these barrels are, are connected. They have like a little connector tube between them. When you have a new wine to add into the Solera, you add it into the top. Even though there is already wine inside these connected barrels that is in the process of aging. The new wine will mostly stay at the top, but as it's gravity fed, you may have some of that wine that is filtered down into the aging wine at the bottom of the Solera. So the wine is perpetually aging and perpetually being added to. Sometimes this is also called a perpetual cuvee, and it's very often used to make fortified wines. However, they do use it in other places where the regional practice of winemaking is to blend. And maybe you can guess where that is, though we have not done an episode on it. It's champagne. Yes, <laughs> they use this style to make some of the world's best sparkling wines. So. In Marsala, this method is used to make the top echelon of wines that the region has to offer, and they're called uh, Virgin or Solera wines. And they, the Virgin wines do not have to be made using a Solera, but oftentimes they are. Then, just to add another layer on, like many of the great wine regions of Italy, there is a Normale level and a Reserva level for the Virgin and Solera wines. At the plain old Normale level, these wines must spend a minimum of five years in cherry wood or oak. Then take that up a notch and the reserva level, they have to spend a minimum of 10 years in either cherry wood or oak. At the reserva level, you can also have a wine called Marsala Stravecchio. This is basically just a fancy word that they like to incorporate onto the label of these wines. The word Stravecchio just means extra aged. And you can find this word attached to all kinds of things in Italy. Sometimes they even use it to refer to things like extra-aged Parmesan. The thing that makes Marsala Virgin styles more traditional styles is that they are not permitted to have any additional sweetening. The best wines that are made in this style are coming from the house that was founded all those years ago by John Woodhouse, and that is Florio. Florio makes their top wines in the dry Virgin style, and though they've still been fortified, there is no additional sweetness added to the blend, making it a very, very traditional style of Marsala, but not so traditional in the way most of us think of the way Marsala should be. There's also Carlo Pellegrino, who makes a similar style of wine out of 100% Grillo grapes, as well as they also give their wines a vintage date. Now, when the laws changed in Marsala in 1986 to get rid of those Marsala Special wines, they made the minimum alcohol requirement by law 18%, which was really kind of a shame because they inadvertently excluded many of the best wines from the DOC, as many of the Solera and the Virgin wines, Vir Virgine, is it Virgine or Virgin? I think it's I don't know, my Italian guys. I read it as Virgin because that's how you would say virgin wines in French. So it's probably like, it's probably Virgine or Virgine, but it doesn't matter. Anyways, these Virgine wines, Virgine, <laughs> Virgine wines, only ever get to about 16% alcohol by volume. Remember, they don't add any sugar to these wines. So you may see the vintage wines of Carlo Pellegrino 
called something like Cecilia or IGT instead of Marsala, as that is one of the many things, again, that has really barred this region from entering into the 21st century wine scene. Now, there are three other tiers of Marsala that fall under the category or fall below the categories of Virgin and Solera that make up sort of the more mass-produced wines, and they're at the very base of the quality pyramid. So on the very first rung, you can have wines that are called fine, which only age for one year in cherrywood or oak. But in this sort of cryptic move by the DOC, they're also allowed to spend the first four months of their aging in quote-unquote other vessels, which I can only assume means stainless steel, but they don't necessarily specify. You also have superiore, sort of one step up from fine, which has to spend at least two years in cherrywood or oak. And then one step up from superiore, you have superiore reserva, which has to spend at least four years in cherrywood or oak. And after those is when you get into the higher levels of our pyramid of quality like Virgin and Solera. But that is not all. Not only do they have these quality levels, but they also have colors and color designations. So even though we have talked about the traditional grapes of Marsala, which were all white, there is a spectrum of colors that can be that those wines can be made into. You can have Marsala wines that are a variety of colors and also contribute to the style of the final wine. However, those colors must fit into one of those previously mentioned quality designations. A wine can be Oro, O-R-O, which is just made entirely out of white grapes. You can also have a wine that's called Rubino, which is red, but technically more like a rosé, as they are allowed to traditionally blend red grapes with white grapes. The white grapes, though, can only ever make up 30% of this blend. And the red grapes are really the usual suspects. It's Nero Davila, Nerello Mascalese, kind of those like very typical Sicilian reds. And then you have two other color designations. You have Ambra and Concia, both of which use something called Mosto Cotto to darken the color and also to increase the sweetness of the finished wine. Mosto Cotto just means cooked must. And I'm not talking about must like a basement. (laughs) I'm talking about grape must, Uh, the juice of grapes after it's pressed, but when it still has sort of yet to be filtered. So it still contains all the pulp, the skins from the pressing. When it's cooked down, you get a sweet, thick grape concentrate, which can be added back into a wine to make it sweeter and also at the same time add color. So Ambra, A-M-B-R-A, sort of like amber, I'm sure ambra is probably the word for amber, only needs to contain 1% of that mostocoto, where the percentage of mostocoto in concia wines is usually a little higher. But it makes the resulting wine sweeter and also darker and more amber in color. Often on the label, there will be an indication of sweetness that goes along with color and quality level. There's a spectrum here, and the word secco, which means dry, isn't necessarily indicative of a dry wine. Secco wines mean that the maximum amount of residual sugar is 40 grams per liter. While the spectrum continues on with semi-secco, which is 40 to 100 grams per liter, and then ends with dolce, which is a minimum of 100 grams per liter, but can definitely be sweeter. Okay, so that has a lot of information to take in about a wine 
that most of us don't drink, and some of us may never even have tried. But a wine region that is super interesting and may be more of a curiosity than it is a wine that we're all going to go out running to get our hands on after hearing this episode. Though I do think that it's a wine that should be looked out for, and it's the kind of wine that if you're having a fancy dinner or maybe you're traveling to Italy and going to some nice restaurants, you'll want to cap off your meal with something special and something that might be a little bit more off the beaten path, then you should definitely keep Marsala in the back of your mind as an alternative to something like Port or Madeira. They are special. And they have a special place and they're not to be overlooked. Now, there is one more region that is making great sweet wine in Sicily. And it is technically part of Sicily, though it is not on the island of Sicily itself. These are the wines made from the islands of Pantelleria, right off the northern tip of Sicily by the toe of the boot. It's a very small chain of islands. And the wine that they make here comes from a grape called Zibibo. Zibibo in most other parts of the world is called Muscat of Alexandria. And it's one of those grapes that we have talked about before, along with the whole Muscat family, as being a bit of uh, an odd family of grapes. It's one of the few grapes that is actually known for smelling and tasting like grapes, (laughs) something that we don't often really talk about in wine. More than that, though, the Muscat family is everywhere. They are all over Europe, from Alsace to Sicily to Lebanon. These wines were part of that trade route of antiquity that saw them spread everywhere. And it's also why they have so many local nicknames, which is why many of you have probably had a Muscat. Maybe you even had a Muscat of Alexandria and you didn't even know that you were drinking it. Here in Pantelleria, 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 it's a hard word to say, (laughs) Pantelleria, they make these sweet wines. They also make dry wines and they also make frizzante style wines. So basically they're making everything, but the wines that they are really known for are their pesito style sweet wines made from Zabibo, aka Muscat of Alexandria. And they have a very interesting way of planting vines here where they kind of dig out these little holes called concha, and then they put the vines inside the holes and they bush train them. So they're almost flush with the ground to keep them from being damaged by winds, which on such a small island in the middle of the sea can get rather intense. Like Sicily, the islands of Pantelleria are volcanic, and the sand and the vineyards here are all black from volcanic rock. There are two sweet wine DOCs that are famous here. The first is just called Moscato di Pantelleria, which is the lighter, less sweet of the two DOCs. Here the grapes are dried, but it is often done on the vine, and it's only for a few days, just to concentrate the sweetness and flavor of these wines a little bit. The more famous and the more intense version of this is Passito di Pantelleria. This is a more serious, more age-worthy wine. Though both these wines are made from Zabibo, the Pasito wines are often left to dry for a month on the vine, making the resulting raisins very sweet and very concentrated. The wines here are usually unfortified, though they can be fortified, but when they are fortified, you'll see it on the label, they call this licoroso, which means that you have, you may have guessed this, added liquor. Nevertheless, uh, the Pasito wines de Pantelleria are very sweet. They come in at a minimum of 100 grams of sugar per liter. De Bertoli is making wines here, a house that is known for some of the most high-end Marsala wines, 
and so is Donna Fugata, who make dry wines in Sicily but are very famous for their sweet wine, Ben Rae, which is a Pasito de Pantelleria. And these are the sweet wines of Sicily. You see, it was too much to lump in with the dry wines now that you've heard the whole episode. These wines are process-driven. They're rooted in lots of tradition, and they're also rooted in a very unique and interesting history. So if you are going to look for a Marsala on your next trip to a Michelin star restaurant, maybe, or if you are going to uh, browse and see if you can get your hands on just something delicious, maybe a Ben Rae from Donna Fugata. They do come, Ben Rae does come into the Toronto market. I've, I've sold it before. Um, and it's a really, really, really tasty wine. But if you're going to check out these wines or you're going to keep them in the back of your back of your mind for your next tasting menu, then before you go, uh, scroll down, leave a rating, leave a review, uh, put some stars down for this episode because this is a 100% independent podcast. It is written, narrated, and hosted by myself, Rachel. And if you did spot a correction or you desperately need to get in contact with me, you can email the podcast at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. You can also check this podcast out on Instagram at housewinepodcast. Or you can look me up personally at Rachel with an A-E-L and Picard like the captain. I need to get better at social media. I'm not going to lie. I've been, since restaurants opened in Ontario, it's been a gong show. It's been crazy busy, but I will be posting more maps. I will make some maps of Sicily and I will put them up there. And until I see you guys, not next week probably, but the week after, unless I crank out that mini soda I have in my mind, then we'll talk about more wine. Keep learning. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs>